What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Martian Media Montage, episode 105, where I'm going to be talking 1993's Perfect World, 1988's Necromantic, 2022's The Menu, two games I've been playing, and a band that I just saw last night. Ten seconds, got it. Uh, uh, Perfect World was a uh, Kevin Costner and Clint Eastwood film uh, in 1993 that Eastwood starred in and directed in, uh, as well as uh, Laura Dern from um, what is it, uh, Blue Velvet and uh, Jurassic Park. Also the same year, actually, surprisingly. Necromantic, I've heard of it. Uh, me being a horror buff, I was like, I got to check this one out. And uh, yeah, it was interesting. I could see it definitely being one of those shock value type horror films. I'll, I'll get into it momentarily. And uh, I finally decided to watch The Menu, which I guess is more like a uh, thriller suspense, I guess. It's not necessarily just horror. It's, I, I mean, not even necessarily suspense, either. more like a thriller meets horror. I don't really know how to describe it, but I enjoyed it for what it was. You know, I'm surprised it took me a year to finally watch it. Uh, I was playing, uh, it's pronounced actually uh, Ico. Uh, a lot of people say it's Ico or ICO or whatever. And it was my dual disc set that I have with uh, Shadow of the Colossus on PS3. I was like, let me check this out. And uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I would highly recommend it. It's a PS2 game originally. And it's, I think the prequel, no, not a prequel. I believe it's the sequel, excuse me, to uh, Shadow of Colossus. Let me get a sip of water here. Liquid Death, not sponsored by them by any means. That's some good-ass mango chainsaw. Anyway, uh, Eco, it, it's like, it's linear, but it feels like it's like open world. And you play as this little character or this little boy who has horns, and then you have a stick with, like, fire in order to unlock puzzles, and you can attack these, I guess for lack of a better phrase, they look like Heartless from Kingdom Hearts. And maybe that's where Kingdom Hearts got inspired from, from this game called Eco. I saw that it was pronounced Eco via a GamePro magazine. It's not ICO, it's not ICO, and so forth, but, you know, tomato, tomato. I'm going to pronounce it ICO, and uh, it's really cool. It's just puzzle platforming. You bring uh, Yorda, the girl around, who's like this, like, white, uh, I guess, shadowy woman, I guess, if you will. I mean, a spirit. I don't really know too much uh, about it. I'm maybe about halfway through it. I think I'm headed towards the West Wing. I already finished the East Wing. Um, it, I, I really enjoy it so far. Uh, the game mechanics are a little strange, uh, to jump its triangle, which is really stupid, uh, you use R1 to essentially grab Yorda and bring her with you, and then you can pull her out of the ground whenever these heartless, like I said, if you will, they bring her into their uh, domain and you can save her. But uh, yeah, it's just puzzle platforming, very little uh, attack mechanics, and uh, yeah, it's like a 3D open world, kind of like if, I guess, Zelda was just strictly just puzzle platforming, or at least that's just how I view it. I I'm having a good time with it. Because I got pretty far in Shadow Colossus on PS2 back in the day. I just never beat it. I think I literally got to the last Colossi, the 16th one, and I just stopped playing. I don't know why. I definitely intend to go back and play it and beat it after I beat uh, Eco. Uh, otherwise, I was playing with my buddy Jason. We were playing uh, Gauntlet. We're both like level 50, 60 uh, Yellow Taurus on N64, the classic way to play it. It's either that or Dreamcast, right? Or even Arcade, I guess, would be fun, too. Um, the game mechanics are still there. The graphics, I mean, it's N64, so I'm not surprised. They're hit or miss, but the gameplay is still there. Frame rate's not the best if there's a lot of uh, characters on screen, but if it's just like, you know, he and I running around, it runs just fine. Gauntlet's a classic for those of you who have played like dungeon crawlers like that. You know, finding the runes, getting the potions, defeating death, defeating the bosses, getting the uh, special weapons to essentially cut the uh, boss's health in half. It's just gauntlet is such a great time I, I used to love playing that on uh 64 and dreamcast as well as i think they had it on uh i think it was also on ps2 i had it and i think that might have been it maybe original xbox too i think that might have been like gauntlet legacy but 
anyway, uh, yeah, those are the three movies that I uh, watched, and I'm going to close out my, uh, I guess, segmented uh, portion of this uh, little <laughs> intro, if you will, with uh, let's get into the show. All right, first movie I'm going to be talking about, as I mentioned, was A Perfect World, 1993, rated PG-13. It is two hours and 18 minutes. Despite it having that sense of longevity, it it's relatively well-paced. And uh, I thought Kevin Costner did a really good job because I, mean, I really enjoy Kevin Costner. You know, I mean, obviously, Waterworld, Dances with Wolves, uh, Mr. Brooks, and so forth. But he gets good movies, but I've always kind of felt like he's just the same particular individual in every movie. And this one shows a little bit of caliber in relation to character that he can portray. It's labeled as a crime drama thriller, has a seven and a half out of 85,000, and rightly so, well-deserved. I, I really enjoyed it. I didn't know what to expect about it. I bought it at a thrift store down the street. It, with it being, I guess, sealed, more or less. The uh, actual box was sealed, but the uh, VHS was still able to be a uh, removed from the box itself but it's about a kidnapped boy named philip who uh kevin costner calls buzz in this in order to uh, i guess uh create some sense of uh animated or animosity not animosity i can't fucking speak english there's your first one uh animinity in relation to uh those who don't you know know his name so he can go around with this little boy and uh, essentially just wreak havoc more or less it's about a kidnapped boy who strikes up a friendship with his captor costner's character an escaped convict on the run from the law while the search for him continues directed by clint eastwood we all know what he's done and what he's been involved with he's fantastic it's fucking eastwood man come on as i mentioned laura dern is also in this uh bradley whitford who uh plays more or less i guess the villain in uh billy madison the <laughs> you know like a little uh weasel laugh that he does that was a terrible impression but uh Yes, the villain that's trying to take over, uh, you know, uh, Billy Madison's dad's uh, corporation, uh, Bradley Whitford, is in this film. Let me get some water. Ah, liquid death is delicious. Love it. All right. Uh, let me read the storyline here. After escaping from a Huntsville prison, convict Robert Butch, they call him Butch, a.k.a. Kevin Costner's character, and his partner Terry Pugh, Keith uh, Sarasbaka, kidna- uh, yeah, fucking... Keith Chewbacca, apparently is his name, kidnaps a young boy, Philip Perry, T.J. Lowther, and flee across Texas. As they travel together, Butch and Philip discover common bonds and suffer the abuses of the outside perfect world. In pursuit is Texas Ranger Red Garnett, a.k.a. Clint Eastwood's character, and criminologist Sally Gerber, Laura Dern. And uh, who did I say he was? Um, fucking uh, Bradley Whitford is basically like a sniper FBI agent who uh, essentially, I mean does uh does the deed at the end i don't really want to give it away i mean even though i sort of kind of just did but let me see what trivia we got going on here clint eastwood was not originally going to act in the film kevin costner talked him into it that's pretty cool producer and director eastwood originally intended to give the role of butch to denzel washington interesting uh, i guess i mean i like denzel too of course of course he's fantastic i mean lady in a blue dress i mean uh training day i mean uh my fucking glory, the uh, book of Eli. I mean, Denzel's fantastic, but um, I, I still feel like Kevin Costner did a great job, and I, I probably wouldn't want to watch it any other way. That being said, more trivia. At one point during shooting, Costner stormed off set in a huff. Rather than wait for him to return, director Eastwood continued to shoot the scene using Costner's stand-in, Mark Thomason. When Costner later returned to the set, shocked to discover that the scene continued without him, Eastwood told him, if you walk off, I'll shoot close-ups with your double. You watch. This guy will play the whole film. I'm not here to jerk off everything. After that incident, Costner did not leave the set during shooting again. I didn't know he was 
sort of a uh, little sissy like that. Well, maybe not necessarily a sissy, but I guess very peculiar about maybe a, a, pater, uh, a particular aspect of filming. Anyway, one of Clint Eastwood's favorite movies of those that he directed. And I can see he didn't even really have that big of a part in it. I mean, he's in it, but not really all that much. It's mostly a Costner film. Uh, filmed wrapped in July of 93, and thanks to producer and director Eastwood's fast economical directing and editing, was out in time for December for the Oscar season of that year in 1993. That is the last bit of trivia I have on that. Let me see what else I got here. All right, released November 24th, 1993. So around that time, for all I know, it was probably Thanksgiving, uh, more or less. And uh, speaking of which, it's I've almost been doing my show for just about a year now. I can't believe it. I'm at 105 episodes and uh, coming up on a year. It'll be a year here in about, I think, two weeks, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, also known as Un Mundo Perfecto. That's Spanish for a perfect world. Filmed in Martindale, Texas. Produced by Warner Brothers and Malpaso Productions. Its budget was $30 million and it grossed $135 million. Uh, rightly so, because, I mean, it's just, it's a solid film. It, it was just very well done, very well paced, acted, directed, everything. Like, I... I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like, I've never heard of this one until I picked it up, and I was like, Kevin Costner and Clint Eastwood? I was like, I don't know what this is. I have n did not know what to expect, and I'm glad I watched it. It was well worth your time. All right, let me see what else we got here. Oh, boy. Uh, Production-wise, Steven Spielberg was interested in directing the film, but was unavailable due to shooting Jurassic Park, as I mentioned, the same year that Laura Dern also starred in that as well, which I feel like she really got her notoriety from because Blue Velvet was in the 80s. She definitely did stuff in the 80s, but she didn't really, I feel like, break out as an actress until Jurassic Park. Okay, moving on. While Eastwood was making In the Line of Fire, he was given the screenplay to A Perfect World. He was also in the midst of campaigning for the Academy Awards with Unforgiven, his uh, classic Western in the 90s. Because uh, I feel like most of his westerns were probably the best ones in like the 60s and 70s. And then obviously 80s had a uh, Pale Raider, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was like 86. Then Unforgiven might have been like 92. I wonder if there's a, uh, a sense of uh, symbolism or a synonym in relation to uh, what is it, Metallica's song, uh, The Unforgiven. Perhaps. I, I don't really know. I didn't really do any research, but I just dawned on me just now. Uh, Eastwood saw Perfect World as an opportunity to work as director only and take a break from acting. When Costner was approached with the screenplay for the film, he suggested that Eastwood be perfect for the role of the Texas Ranger Red Garnett. Eastwood agreed, realizing the screen time would not be significant, as I've stated, leaving most of the time to work behind the camera. Also very true. Screenwriter John Lee Hancock said part of the idea for the character of Philip and his Casper costume came from a childhood memory he had of his brother running out around a Texas field in such a costume. That's pretty cool. Because, yeah, that was very iconic that uh part i think when he finally put the costume on film was shot in austin texas martindale as well san marcos and lockhart in the spring and summer of 93 hence why uh, eastwood hurried up and uh, edited it directed it and then showed it to theaters around uh thanksgiving time the film has a 79 percent score on rotten tomatoes based on 33 reviews i'd probably give it more but whatever uh, the site's uh, critical consensus states, despite some formulaic touches, Eastwood's haunting, ambiguous crime drama is smart and gritty and features a bravura performance from Costner as a prison escapee on the run. Agreed. Like I said, I, I just, every time I see uh, Costner, I'm always just like, oh, I mean, he's got good movies, but I'm like, he's just an okay actor. I, I feel like this had some pretty good acting chops for him in this, especially early on uh, in his career. Positive reviews praised for the film's emotional depth and accurate depiction of the psychology of hostage situations. Critics argue that Costner's subtly nuanced 
portrayal of the escaped convict Butch Haynes forms the cornerstone of the film's success and is one of the actor's finest performances. Agreed. I, I yeah, couldn't agree more with that. This is arguably some of his best uh, acting chops, if you will, in my opinion, of course, as well as the uh, website's opinion. Roger Ebert, here we go. Called it a film that any director alive might be proud to sign. Agreed. While the New York Times hailed it as deeply felt, deceptively simple film that marks the high point of Mr. Eastwood's directing career thus far. Eh, I, don't, I don't agree with that, but anyway. In the years since its release, the film is acclaimed by critics as one of Eastwood's most satisfying and underrated directorial achievements, as he even stated himself. And the scenes between the convict Costner and his young captive Lowther have been acknowledged as some of the most delicately crafted sequences in all of Eastwood's body of work, especially at the end with uh, fucking... Uh, Costner's bluff when he's like, I still have a pistol, you know, if you don't let this kid go, you know, to you and make all these promises that he gets candy and gets to go trick-or-treating every year, I'm going to shoot him kind of deal. And then the kid clearly shot him in the gut and threw the gun in the well. It's just, it's, it was just very well crafted and I just didn't expect any of it at the end. I, I thought it was fantastic. But that's what I got on A Perfect World. Highly recommended for those of you who are fans of Eastwood as well as Costner. Check it out. All right, I'm going to be getting into something completely polar opposite now. Necromantic, <laughs> 1988, not directed, or not directed, excuse me, clearly it was directed by uh, Jörg Buttigieritz. It's all German, I'm not even going to bother looking them up because I don't recognize any of them from anything. It's not rated as an hour and 11 minutes short, just like how Tetsuo the Iron Man is, and I'm more of a fan personally of Tetsuo the Iron Man. I, I could see why this one's uh, important in the catalog of, I guess, shock value in terms of horror. It's just... It's basically just like watching corpse porn. That's really what it was to me. I, I don't know. I, it's not that I didn't get it. It's just I'm like, okay, if that's all they were trying to do was shock people, like I'd rather watch something that's more shocking personally. That's just me. Has a 4.8 out of 11,000. Then again, I'm a tough critic when it comes to horror personally. Uh, I enjoyed it very minimally, I guess. You know, I think the title is really cool. And I think that's probably where the uh, rockabilly or psychobilly band got their name from was probably this film. You know, and they also even have a song called, like, you know, I'm a monster movie fan, so I'm guessing that's where it came from, just a guess. You know, and they were clearly inspired by uh, Mad Sin, which was another psychobilly band before them. I mean, I can talk on and on about music like I normally do, or movies, or video games, or whatever. Hi, I'm Tyler. How you doing? Welcome back to Martial Media Montage. Anyway, let's get into Necromantic. A street sweeper who cleans up after grisly accidents brings home a full corpse for him and his wife to enjoy sexually, as I've mentioned, more or less. It is dismayed to see that his wife prefers the corpse over him. That is very true. And she leaves him to essentially take the corpse with her. As I mentioned, uh, stars a bunch of German people since the entire film is in German and has English subtitles. I don't know any of these people. I haven't watched the second one yet, and I'm a little reluctant to check that one out, considering I, if I know what I'm getting into and it's going to be the same sort of thing. I mean, I don't know. I, I will gladly... At some point in time, watch it, and I'll maybe talk about it next episode or something. Okay, let's see what the storyline here is. It looks like there's a little more. Sharing a mutual fascination for the dead and the macabre, Berlin misfits Betty and Robert are about to broaden their horizons when Rob takes a job as a cleaner at an aftermath cleanup agency. Now, nothing can stop them, and as the obsessed new employee gradually amasses a rich and grotesque collection of severed limbs and human organs right under everyone's noses, the couple's dreams will finally come true when Rob brings home an unexpected gift to impress his girlfriend, a putrid cadaver that's hers to keep. However, as one thing leads to another and Betty grows increasingly fond of her silent, decomposing companion, the question arises, can Robert handle the bizarre menage a trois? Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. Uh, get some water. Taglines, a film about love for a man and what remains of him. Uh, sure. Okay, whatever. 
Let me see what uh, perhaps maybe some interesting trivia we got going on here. Director Jorg Buttigieg said in an interview that he never intended to be a director and Necromantic was just a film to rebel against the German film rating system, trying to shock as many people as possible. And well achieved, because that's exactly what I feel like you did. I mean, I watched it and I was like, what the fuck am I watching? Uh, the main corpse's eyes were actually pig eyes that Jorg, Jorg, I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it, excuse me, had acquired from a slaughterhouse by claiming to be a medical student. Crazy. When the protagonist, Robert, is watching a fictional slasher film in the movie theater, the screaming sound effects towards the end of the scene are directly taken from the infamous splinter scene of Lucio Fulci's film, Zombie, 1979. Love that movie. I just love Italian directing, though. It's just so just, ah, they're just so bizarre. I love the whole giallo. Anyway, two more. In the bedroom, there's a picture of Charles Manson. He was a notorious cult leader who was convicted of his first-degree murder and the conspiracy to commit murder. Uh, we all know Helter Skelter, right? For those of us who know uh, some sort of grasp of history. Lastly, uh, excuse me, I just had some in and out. <laughs> Sorry. Some uh, cheeseburgers. I got it for free. Hey, because I am... 11 years Navy and uh, happy Veterans Day for those of you guys out there who are also uh, vets or still serving. You know, I'm happy to do business with you. Anyway, lastly, film debut of Burnt Doctari Lorenz and his only performance on a feature film. I could see why, because after doing anything, something like this, I'd be like, I don't think I deserve to be in movies anymore. I just did fucking corpse porn is what I just did. But anyway. All right. Released November 25th, 2014, apparently. Uh, I watched it on Shudder, and that's my guess is when people finally got the rights to it. Uh, filmed in Berlin, I'm not surprised. And I have nothing in terms of a budget. Let's see what Wikipedia has to say. Maybe they might have an answer there. Nope, no budget there. Okay. All right. It is co-written and directed by Jörg Buttigieg. As I've mentioned, it is known to be frequently controversial, in a number of countries, and has become a cult film over the years due to its transgressive subject matter, including necrophilia, pretty much as I've mentioned, and audacious imagery. Yeah. Production-wise, uh, Buttigieg, the director, had previously directed featurettes in Super 8 format, but this was his first feature-length film. Granted, I can't really call it a feature-length film. I feel like usually feature-length films have to at least be 80 to 90 minutes, and this was only an hour and ten I guess if you include credits, maybe an hour and five or so. So it's more like a short film, like a novella of films, if you will. Yes. <laughs> Boo Garrett and co-writer friends Rondon Kirkin conceived the basic concept of the film while discussing the relationship between love, sex, and death. The idea to connect an organism to the moment of death, somebody actually enjoying his own death, was part of their initial ideas. The film was a no-budget film. Well, there's your answer right there. With inexpensive special effects. The film makes use of actual animal intestines and eyeballs of pigs. I noticed that there was definitely some aspect of uh, animal cruelty. Well, yeah, but then again, I mean, they the rabbit that they took apart. Yes, uh, let me read actually about that. The rabbit-related scene used as a documentary-style footage of a professional rabbit breeder at work. Uh, I believe it. They probably, you know, took apart the rabbit and actually ate it. They didn't just, you know, ditch the carcass or anything, and I can believe that. All right. Uh, other than his hobby of collecting specimens from corpses, uh, analytically, Rob is depicted as a typical member of German working class. On the other hand, the company which employs him has fascist illusions and its naming and emblem. When Rob loses his job, his romance with Betty also ends, as I've mentioned, because he got fired and therefore she was like, I'm going to take the corpse with me and leave. And she does. She berates him for his lack of both money and manliness. Yep. Then she abandons him, introducing the themes of emotional and financial impotence. Lenny Blake finds it telling that the murder of the young gardener is previously seen shooting at birds and is so similar to characters from the Heimatzoll films. I can't, I, yeah, some sort of essentially West conservative German genre. I, 
excuse me, I, I'm unfamiliar with this, sorry, uh, depicting um, morally unimpeachable family and community lives. She argues that Buttigieg both evokes and derides this genre by implication the culture which produced it. The supposedly upstanding member of society kills, hides a corpse, and then disappears from view, getting away with murder. The film includes several occasions of dream sequence, such as Rob's vision of a woman in white and rural landscape. She transports a severed head in a box and later plays with it. Yeah, that was a weird fucking sequence as well. The film within a film is a slasher film. I wouldn't really consider a zombie a slasher. It's more or less a zombie-related film, but I will continue on. While a knife-wielding killer traces his knife across a female victim, the desensitized audience of the movie theater seems bored. Oh, okay, that aspect. I thought they were referring to the uh, sound sequence. Okay, yes, there is a scene where they go into the movie theater and they watch a slasher film. Excuse me. I sit corrected because I'm not standing doing this. <laughs> they kiss or fondle each other. They eat or talk during a misogynist torture scene, a testament to their lack of empathy. The suicide sequence is a depiction of extreme masochism, but it also concludes the story of the character's sexual dysfunction, ex existential crisis, and social isolation. Rob is not only a person with a fetish of the dead, but one who constantly falls in his relationships with the living. Yeah, it's fucking, it's just weird, man. Anyway, uh, release-wise, since 84, all horror films released in West Germany have been edited to remove violent sequences, both in cinema and video releases, such as 85's Day of the Dead, fantastic, while a total of 32 films have been banned from release in any format, including The Texas Chainsaw Massacre of 74, Mother's Day 1980, which I talked about before, uh, Mother's Day is a trip, I, I enjoyed that one for what it was, it was kind of like Last House on the Left meets like I Spit on Your Grave, featuring, I guess, Mother's Day holiday, why not? and The Evil Dead 81. The creators of Necromantic did not want to submit the film for review and made the film available exclusively to an adult audience. The film was released on Blu-ray on a limited run of 10,000 copies October 7th of 2014. That being said, it's probably one of those sought-after expensive horror films now. Uh, excuse me. I told you. I had in and out for free. Sorry. I'm just gassy now. Well, then again, I'm also drinking a carbonated uh, water. I had a Neapolitan shake. Ah, oh, man, so good. Love Neapolitan shakes. Anyway, film critics of Berlin were typically favorable to the film. Interesting. Commenting on its taboo, breaking its artistic merit and quality of its special effects, even though they were no budget, as they mentioned, with real animal intestines and so forth. But anyway, magazine article on sex and death in the modern gay cinema. Interesting. Perceived a film as an allegory for AIDS and the necessity of safe sex. Sure. However you want to look at it, by all means, go for it. The film initially faced no significant uh, reprisals. It was the only scandal over the sequel, Necromantic, uh, the second one, in 1991, which caused German authorities to temporarily ban sales by mail order of the original film. John Waters proclaimed Necromantic the first one, the first ever erotic film for necrophiliacs. And yeah, I yeah I can agree with that. Like I said, I, even like talking about it, watching it and reading it, I'm like, yeah, this it's basically what it is. It's just corpse porn. It's all that's all it was. <laughs> The film is currently banned outright in Iceland, Malaysia, and Singapore, and provinces of Nova Scotia and Ontario in Canada. The Australian Classification Board in 92 banned the film outright in Australia due to graphic necrophilia content, and I can believe them for doing that. I, I get it. In 93, the film was banned in Finland as well. The film was banned outright by New Zealand Office of Film and Literature Classification in 99 due to revolting, objectionable content, necrophilia, high-impact violence, animal cruelty, and abhorrent behavior. It's banned in a number of other countries as well. In 2014, the British Board of Film Classification passed the film uncut with an 18 certificate. Wow. Uh, Legacy-wise, lastly, the film spawned a sequel three years later in uh, 92, Necromantic 2, by the same director. 
Beatrice Manowski reprises her role as Betty in a short cameo. Norwegian black metal band Carpathian Forest covered the film's opening theme in their album Strange Old Brew. Danish psychobilly and necromantics is named after the film. What did I say? I had a feeling. It just made perfect sense. I had no idea. That was a blind read. I just was like, yep, I had a feeling necromantics was inspired by this. And, well, necromantics kicks ass. I'd be down to see them live. I will get to the band that I saw live here uh, after I talk about this film. I'm not changing pace here. All right, let's go. The Menu, 2022, rated R, hour and 47 minutes. Took me a year to watch it. I heard good things about it. And, yeah, it it was interesting. Uh, I enjoyed it. It's labeled as a comedy horror thriller. And I guess comedic antics, uh, sure, ensued. More or less like black comedy, not necessarily like in-your-face, like stepbrothers comedy, but definitely underlying uh, comedic tones. Uh, has a 7.2 out of 360,000, and rightly so, because, it, yeah, for what it was, I enjoyed it. A young couple travels to a remote island to eat in an exclusive restaurant where the chef has prepared a lavish menu with some shocking surprises. And that's about all you really need to know about it. Uh, directed by Mark Malloyd, or Malod, Mylod, um, I don't know how to, whatever. Um, he's done episodes of Game of Thrones, The Affair, as well as Shameless. So he did mostly TV, and I know those TV shows, I haven't really watched any of them, to be honest with you. I'm kind of picky when it comes to TV shows, but anyway, I mean, he directed a decent film. I enjoyed it for what it was, starring Ralph Fiennes, Anya Taylor-Joy, as well as Nicholas Holt. Uh, Ralph Fiennes plays the chef. Nicholas Holt plays Tyler, and, yeah, that's my name. It's not me. John Leguizamo was in this uh, before. I feel like he kind of went off the deep end in relation to his whole, the way that he is now, more or less. I don't really need to get into that. For those of you that know John Leguizamo, now you know or you probably already knew. Anyway, I'm just <laughs> beating a dead horse over here. Taglines, wonderful surprises await you all. Yeah, sure. Okay, trivially, let's see what we got here for the menu. Screenwriter Will Tracy came up with the idea of the story while on his honeymoon in Bergen, Norway. When he took a boat to a fancy restaurant, Cornelius, on a nearby private island, and realized that they were stuck or trapped on the island until the meal was done. There are numerous references to the restaurant Noma in Copenhagen in the menu, starting from location, idea, concept, and the ending with the menu itself. I guess only, like, nerd nerds who know geography and topography would have known that because I, I definitely didn't put two and two together until now, more or less. Anyway... Actress Amy Carrero revealed the director, Mark Mylod, uh, offered each of the actors one freebie take after securing a scripted take, in which he encouraged the actors to improvise material, which is also how Slowick's Taco Tuesday line ended up in the final cut. Interesting. That's pretty cool. <clears throat> the entire kitchen team were trained to actually create the dishes broken down station by station so that if any time you look at them, they're all doing the correct things that they should be doing for that dish where real life and not a film. Also interesting. We got two more. The burger consumed by Anya Taylor-Joy was a real burger as opposed to the food seen throughout the film. The dishes created by Chef Slowick were prop foods. Everyone was so hungry on set watching Anya Taylor-Joy eating the burger that John Leguizamo ordered burgers and fries for the entire cast. <laughs> That's funny. It did look pretty good, too, that uh, last burger that she eats. That's fucking funny. The lavish food layouts were prepared by renowned French chef Dominique Crenn, the only female chef in the U.S. to attain three it looks like it says Michelin. <laughs> to attain three Michelin tire stars, <laughs> I couldn't help myself there, for her restaurant Atelier Crenn in San Francisco as of 2016, uh, six years prior to the film's making. Seven years now. Almost eight. Though many of the cast and crew were often tempted to taste the delicacies between takes, they had to be reminded that the food items were predominantly props and thus inedible. Even though despite being hungry and then John Leguizamo ordering them cheeseburgers and fries. That's awesome. Okay. Let's take a look here. All right, what do we got here? 
released November 18th, 2022. I, all three of these films, it was like, what, November 22nd, and then it was 24th, and then now it's uh, November 18th. That's great. I, you know, this is all just shooting from the hip. I had no idea that they were all released in uh, November. It was actually filmed in Savannah, Georgia, despite looking like a uh, island. So anyway, budget $35 million and it grossed $79 million. So it definitely doubled uh, in its terms of uh, budget, so good for them. Uh, you know, I, I enjoyed it for what it was. I didn't expect to enjoy it at all, to be honest with you, but I was pleasantly surprised. Uh, excuse me. It's just, it's got to be the carbonated water. All right. The menu had its world premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival on September 10th, 2022, released in the U.S. November 18th by Searchlight Pictures and uh, nationwide receiving positive reviews from critics. And I, I yeah, it was like, just a, it was an interesting concept, like, that just, I, I haven't seen before. Like, hey, come eat at my restaurant. And by the way, you can't leave. I'm going to kill you all. And it was just something I feel like that has never been done before. And it was just very simple in its storytelling. And it, it works. Development. Uh, announced April 2019 that Alexander Payne was attached to direct. However, in December 2019, the screenplay appeared on the annual Blacklist, a survey showcasing most popular films still in development. As of May 2020, Searchlight Pictures held dis- distribution rights, and Payne had left the film due to scheduling conflicts with Mark Mylod, replacing Payne as director. Filmed in post-production filming began on September 3rd of 2021 in Savannah, Georgia, as I mentioned, with cinematographer Peter Deming and film editor... Christopher Tellipson. Film locations include the Jekyll Island Shore. Colin Stetson composed the musical score, releasing uh, by Milan Records, The Menu, original motion picture soundtrack, November 18th, coinciding with the film's release. The film was released on digital platform as of January 3rd of this year, 2023, almost a year ago now. Close, eh, relative, might as well be a year, right? With a Blu-ray and DVD release by Walt Disney Home Studios Entertainment. Okay, January 17th, 2023. Nothing says Mickey Mouse like, eat my food and let me kill you, right? Sure, whatever. Okay. Critical response. Ooh, review aggregators, Rotten Tomatoes. They actually have a good score here for a change. 88% as of 314 critics. That's a lot. Positive with an average rating of 7.5 out of 10. The website's consensus reads, while its social commentary relies on basic ingredients, the menu serves up black comedy with plenty of flavor. What did I say? Black comedy. So I, that, I, I almost feel like when they put genre labels on IMDb, they should just say like black comedy is, or dark comedy. It's, it's the same thing. It's just... You know, rather than just say comedy, because whenever I see comedy, I'm thinking like, I don't know, Caddyshack or fucking Ghostbusters or something, for lack of a better phrase. I'm not thinking of uh, dark comedy like, you know, Big Lebowski, but which I love that film. But anyway, Metacritic uses a weighted average assign the film a score of 71 out of 100 based on 45 critics, generally favorable reviews. Audiences surveyed by a cinema score gave them the film a grade B on an A to F scale, while those polled by post-track giving it a 78% positive score, with 53% saying that they would definitely recommend the film. Yeah, yeah, I could definitely get on board with that. All right, lastly, I'm going to be talking about a show that I went to last night, and my ears are still ringing from uh, last night's uh, show. I had a good time. I went and saw a classic punk rock band, uh, DI, Drug Ideology is what it stands for. The band formed in 81 in Fullerton, California, founded by vocalist and primary songwriter Casey Royer. Casey Royer wrote the song Amoeba for the Adolescents uh, after previously playing drums in the band Adolescents and Social Distortion. So that makes perfect sense why they played that song last night. And I was also wearing an adolescent shirt because they both sound very, very similar in relation to that, like, you know, surfy skate punk, you know, and then they even talk about like surfing and skateboarding and so forth. Uh, Since its formation... 
DI had many unique lineup changes over the years, but Warrior being the only constant member of the band. The band has continued to work, and rightly so, because like I said, I saw them last night and my ears are still ringing. I had a great time. Although they had inactive periods, which include the band going on hiatus between albums during the years of touring and recording albums, DI had never gained a huge mainstream success compared to, I would have to say, yeah, uh, adolescence and so forth in terms of that era. But they have influenced many of the 19-era 1980s era melodic hardcore punk and punk rock revival bands, including Face to Face, Guttermouth, Jughead's Revenge, The Offspring, and Pennywise, which clearly have much larger notoriety compared to DI, except for those of us punk rock nerds who know classic punk, right? At least American punk, that is. Members of the band also joined up with Daddy X and Dirtball of the Cottonmouth Kings to create the punk rock band The X Pistols in 2010. Never heard of that one. Uh, what else we got here? I don't really... Okay. Uh, okay. Members uh, present, uh, Casey Royer on vocals, Clinton Calton on uh, guitar. He was the uh, main guy, uh, lead, um, Trevor Lucca on drums. I think it was like Andrew Gomez, I want to say there. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Joey Tetar did drums, or that's what it says as far as uh, April 2018. I believe it's somebody else. I want to say it was Andrew Gomez is who they said was on drums. Uh, Eddie Tatar on bass, I can believe that, and Trevor Lucca on the other, or rhythm guitar. I don't know if his name was Trevor off the top of my head, but I know Casey for sure, I know Clinton, and then I know uh, Andrew Gomez on drums. But yeah, I had a great time, man. Uh, 1985's uh, Ancient Artifacts came out. Actually, I think that that's switched. I want to say 86 was Ancient Artifacts, and Horse Bites and Dog Cries was 85, so that should be uh, switched. And then 88's uh, What Good Is Grief to a God? And then I had Tragedy again in 89. I feel like everything else after that was just more or less, eh. You know, their earlier stuff is definitely better. Same with uh, TSOL, if you uh, ask me. Speaking of TSOL, I hope to see them next month, and I will talk about them. But uh, before uh, DI uh, came on, they had a, a band called uh, Cockblockers. Yeah, great name, right? And uh, I felt like musically they were tight. Lyrically, it was uh, very provocative, and it made a lot of sense. It, it was interesting, and it was just in-your-face, like guttermouth lyrics. I didn't really care for his vocals all that much, just the way that he actually sang, but it was, I had a good time. Rare Sense was awesome. They are a local band here in the area where I live, and I thought it was fantastic. It was like Descendants meets like 10 Foot Pole meets like the Deviates and other like Nitro Records or Epitaph, like skate punk from like the 90s meets like, I guess, early emo punk, like Descendants. It was just really, really cool. I thought they did a great job. They were young kids, you know, and after they uh, played their set, I went up to them, thanked them. You know, I was like, hey, I had a good time. You guys are clearly on to something. And I thought it was great. Manual Fade played after them. And Manual Fade was like, I almost feel like they were at the wrong, wrong venue. It was like, I don't know, like stoner metal meets like punk meets like, I don't know, crossover or something. It was its own kind of thing. And they clearly can play. I didn't know what they were necessarily saying, but they could definitely play. And they were the older band there next to like di who's probably in their 50s if not 60 you know and they were pretty much the same like the guy was playing on like it looked like a firebird uh guitar and he was just shredding too and then the, the bassist looked like he was late to like a cannibal corp show or something which was awesome he was a gentle giant just super nice guy and just very like shy and like quietly spoken and you know it was just i i felt like they were at the wrong venue it wasn't bad but it just wasn't my cup of tea more or less and then Violates uh, Community Standards played. And Violates Community Standards is like Authority Zero meets like Pennywise meets like No Effects. It's its own kind of culmination of all of it. And they, I've seen them twice now because they played when I saw DRI. And they did a great job as well once again. 
Uh, I hope that they get to put out their album here in January. Uh, they do have a couple songs on Spotify, Violates Community Standards, as well as Rare Sense has a couple songs on uh, Spotify as well. Uh, I think some singles and maybe an LP, if I'm not mistaken. And then DI came on and they blew it out of the fucking park. I mean, they played a, yeah, what, OC Life, Johnny's Got a Problem, um, you know, Pervert Nurse, uh, Amoeba, as I mentioned, that adolescent song, uh, Stick to Your Guns. Then they played um, Guns, the song, which is, I mean, just, they played everything that I wanted them to play, which was their earlier stuff from the 80s, and they blew it out of the park. It was awesome. I had a great time. So uh, there you have it, three movies, the two games I was playing, Eco, Gauntlet, and I got to see D.I., some old school, hardcore, like, you know, surf, skate, punk from the 80s. All right, enjoy the rest of your uh, Veterans Day, guys. As always, thank you for the love and support, and have a good weekend.